Do remain standing and turn to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there is a blue ESV right in front of you. You can pick that up. Looking at Judges 1, 1 through 7. Before we hear God's word read, let's go to him again, asking for his illumination. O God, without your light, we do not see clearly what you have revealed to us. We are, every moment of the day, dependent upon the illuminated power of the Spirit. We pray then that the Spirit would give us that sight, that we would see clearly Christ and what you would have for us in these seven verses. Again, the glorification of our great God and King. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Judges 1, 1 through 7, hear now the word of God. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, almost two years ago to the Sunday, this church was in a bit of a pickle, the kind of pickle that confuses a congregation, or at least has the potential for that. We wouldn't do well to call this a crisis, but certainly it was a time that required immediate attention. The former pastor, a certain Joshua Owen, had decided to take another pastoral call down in Florida. Naturally, the elders in the congregation alike were wondering, well, where to go? Where are we going to go from there? It wasn't the church's first experience, first time experiencing this kind of thing, but every time necessitates a new effort to execute decently and in order a smooth transition for the good of the church. We are, as things now stand, in the middle of a similar process, are we not? Not that, not that we are looking for a new senior pastor, but that we have been on the hunt for some additional help for an associate pastor. This is why I preached through Titus towards the end of 2022, because we want firmly established the, the sound doctrine, that what, what makes up a, a healthy church. And so leadership vacancies cry out to be filled for the sake of the church's stability and, and health and growth. So our situation two years ago, and in a sense even now, 
recalls Israel's situation at the start of the book of Judges when we read of another Joshua, this one being Moses' successor, but whose century-long life has come now to an end and whose death now demands a new leader. The question then naturally arises, well, who shall lead the people of Israel as they continue their efforts to mop up the Canaanites so that they might fully possess the promised land? In a time of potential panic, question is, is there a constant? Is there stability? Will the people be left high and dry without a leader and so without a land? Really, the question at bottom is, what will become of Israel? And as these questions swirled about in the hearts of God's people, we also wonder for ourselves. In a world run by clowns, to paraphrase Doug Wilson, in a world full of people who do their pleasure, is there stability? What is the constant, if there is one? Is there any possibility of hope? Is there any possibility for justice? And what we'll see over and again throughout this great book of Judges is that God is both holy and faithful. We see in some of the starkest, most graphic ways the devolution and the infidelity of man. But not just man outside of the covenant of grace, In fact, not even primarily those out there. But, most tragically, the very people with whom God covenanted in that covenant of grace. Nevertheless, the faithful Lord will always deliver justice for his glory and in his timing. Now, because this is the first sermon in a series, uh, the series of Judges, it's helpful to set the scene, to get the overall context of this book. And so we need to see the literary forest and a few of these trees. As far as who wrote this book, no human author takes ownership of this book. You don't see at the start of this book or at any point someone saying, I write, wrote this book. You don't see that. Nevertheless, I follow the lead of many, including the Jewish tradition, who identify Samuel as the man who penned the book of Judges. Identifying Samuel as a human author makes sense, though it is not a hill to die on. Hopefully no one would die on that hill. His authorship makes sense over the overall argument and the purpose of this book. But regardless of human authorship, this is not merely human. This is not just a book written by just a man. This is a divine book. This is one of those 66 books in the whole Bible, each one a special part as the song goes. It is human, penned by humans, but is divine, superintended by the Holy Spirit. We must then treat it as such. We must firmly lodge this truth in our minds. And perhaps, if you've, if you've read the book, you might think that it is an incoherent pile of stories to no end. Of course, this thinking is wrong, and it's more of an indication of our failure to discern the word, the very clear word, 
God's clear presentation of what He is communicating over and again in this book of sin and grace. And as the title of the sermon hints, Judah is front and center to this book. Twice, here and near the end of the book, as Israel seeks counsel from the Lord, the Lord clearly answers that it will be Judah who shall go up, it shall be Judah who shall lead the way to victory. This book, penned by Samuel, was his way of arguing for David as the rightful king. And if we know anything about Judges, it is this refrain found towards the end of the book, which we already read this morning. There was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This refrain calls for a king. From where then will this king come? Will he come from Saul's hometown, Gibeah of Benjamin? Judges will soon tell us that this city was sodomite to the core. Will this king then come from Judah, the tribe from which David and his house came? Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, argues that this book was written during the seven-year civil war between these two houses, the house of David and the house of Saul in his son Ishbosheth. The point then is this, that as Samuel argues for David and Judah, he is really arguing for Jesus. Judges, as we will see at every step of the way, is all about Jesus, is all about the Jesus of Judah, Jesus the Christ. It's all about the Messiah. Even from the beginning, when we we see that we are calling out for a king, we we know there's only one sufficient king, and that is Christ, who perfectly executes the office of king. And this fact, among others, forces us to see the history of Judges as inspired. What we are coming to, dear ones, is inspired history. It's inspired chronology. This is real history of real people, of real places, of real fights, of real sin, and of real grace, real mercy, long-suffering of the triune God. And all that is for our good, because we are real people in real places, and we have real fights, and we have really nasty sin. And so we really need real grace. This book is not a lengthy allegory, a myth, a a parable, just a good story to inspire a conduct or to strike fear in the heart of the disobedient. Though there are elements of, of that, of inspiring good conduct. This is real history. And as such, it is needful for us because we are part of God's real history, His story. If we look rightly, that is to say, if we are looking through the lens of the Word of God, through the light of the Spirit, we will see ourselves in Judges more times than we care to admit. Or perhaps, if I can modify what I just said, we'll see ourselves as we like to admit. That is to say, with the Spirit enlightening our eyes, we will see our sin in its greater heinousness, and so appreciate the Savior, in His greater glory and mercy. As we come forward, as we move forward, we will see 
that God, as our constant, guides us. He graces us with songs of deliverance. He even writes one of those in chapter 5. As inspired history, we do not have the luxury of avoiding hard teaching wherever it is. And certainly we see it in Judges. And I say we because this is a message to the church today, as it was the Old Testament church. Yes, the application is different from time to time. But this book is for you and for me. It is for all the churches in America and everywhere else. The Lord reserves his hardest words for his church. This book is not so much about, it's not a a divine diatribe against the Canaanites. It is a word spoken to the people of God. Marks of faithfulness, at the same time, warnings because of infidelity. And so, sometimes, yes, the Lord reserves his hardest words for his church. And we will see throughout this book that the most shocking acts in Judges are being committed by the very people of God. This is hard history. We do not come to this book lightly, like we should never come to any book of the Bible lightly. If you've read through this book, you've assessed it as a hard book. It is a difficult book to read. Not hard in the sense of, say, Leviticus with its chapters on law and leprosy, but with the the difficulty of the people and what they're doing. So we will read hard stories that tell of faithless, adulterous, idolatrous people. We will read, yes, of rape, of murder, of homosexuality, of civil war, and much more besides. We will behold tragedy, the logical end of a wayward national soul. And we are reminded then that we need all of the word of God for all of our life. Oh, how we need the book of Judges. Because through Judges, the Lord will tell us again and again of oh, how we need Jesus Christ. And so at the same time, yes, we we will experience, we will read all of that hard stuff, but we will at the same time behold our Savior through it all and his constant, steadfast love of the covenant. We will read of victory, of faith, and of God taking the reins to pummel his and our enemies. And so before we even get started, the application here is that God works in and through and for his people. So very clear throughout Scripture, throughout the book of Judges, is that point. God works in us, through us, and for us. This is a a needed reminder For all of us, is it not? Despite our hardships, even the heavy hand of the Lord, his fatherly discipline, God remains our constant supply of grace. And so he continually calls us to faith in him. Is this not what you need as you start the new year? As you experience perhaps broken or uh, tentative relationships? As you go from 2022 to 2023, with that besetting sin that has 
walked along with you. You continue to struggle against that sin. As you face trials of various kinds, you need the constant supply of grace. You need your God who created you, who redeemed you, who sustains you for his glory and your good. Judges stands in a small group of stories that are not satisfied with one introduction. Now, I never write two introductions on my sermon. I prefer one. The shorter, the better. I like to just get right into the meat of the message. Students will no doubt revolt if their teacher adds to the required five-paragraph essay a second introduction. But Samuel is undaunted. As the fullness of the incarnation requires two natures of Christ, so the fullness of judges requires two introductions. So you have one in chapter 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 5. In this section, we have the success of the Israelites and the suppression of their enemies. Now, most writers reserve the happy part to the end of the story. Judges does not. There is no happy ending in this sense. There's no wonderful marriage between a man and a woman. It's not a a tying up of all that conflict, but rather the judges ends hanging. We need someone who can help clean up this mess. Samuel pushes these success stories to the front of the book to remind us that a good start is only good if it ends well. This, then, is the doctrine of perseverance that we will see over and over in this book. And so one truth of perseverance is the daily reminder to seek the face of God for our own faithfulness. We want to be more like Jesus, and we need him. By saying this, we do not deny God's gracious work of preserving us. Oh, how we depend moment by moment on that grace. But it is a perennial truth, as expressed in this book, that we would persevere. God gives the runner strength in his legs. And without this strength, he cannot run. And the runner himself uses the strength in his legs to run, and to run well. He must run, and he can only run to the degree that he has the strength from God. So we see success and suppression, but also in the second introduction in 2.5 through 3.6, there is a spiral of sin. We read of a descending cycle of sin. Do you remember those playground slides that circle round and round, just like, just like metal or wire you know, circles? They're pretty, uh, pretty narrow. We don't have them in the playground here, but um, I know I played with one when I was a kid. And it's not a stepladder to the play structure. It's a circular uh, slide. And what you're supposed to do, you can, you can fit your childhood body on it, use it as intended, is you, you would go down. You put yourself on the top, and you just go down. You're not just spinning in a circle. Okay? And, and so sometimes people will view judges as just continually repeating the same sin at the same level. And that's not what judges is about. It's God's people are sitting high. There's the success, but through their 
continual sinful actions, they are being brought low, down and down and down. They are being humbled because of their sin. If we fail to persevere, sin is the result, and sin is the cause, and so sin is our fault. Never can we lay blame to God for our sin and the rotten fruit that comes from a heart desperately in need of a Savior. Surely, dear saints, you have felt the heat of the fire as you have inched closer and closer to sin. The entire book then, and especially in the nutshell form of these introductions, calls for a Savior. And we would do well to keep these lessons in mind as we have set the scene. But as we have set the scene, we also then serve the Savior of this text. We see again the problem in verse 1. Who shall go up? Who shall go first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Israel knew the promised land to be theirs. God had promised this land to Abraham. Moses had led the people to the land. And Joshua was to lead them in the conquest. The land had already been allotted to the tribes. What had remained was the mopping up phase. When the child was asked if he had cleaned the room, he says, yes. Even if there might remain a plate on the desk or some shoes need to be put in the closet. Yes, it's cleaned. Canaan was dispossessed. It was taken and it was allotted to Israel. But some Canaanite places and people still thought that they could hang around for a while. They resisted dispossession, just like any people group would. No, of course you can't take our land. This is our land. And so they fought. And so in part, the Canaanites were the problem. They remained. And as we'll see later, they became thorns in the sides of Israel. But another part, as we've already noted, was that of identifying Israel's new leader. With a great Leader Joshua gone, who will now lead them? But we must know that this really is only a problem if Israel is willing to wage war. If Israel is going to engage in war, then this becomes a problem. A passive, submissive way of living is always on the table, but never for the one who feasts with the Lord in the presence of his enemies. There must be a fight. The Lord employs his people to wage war against darkness. That's clear in verse 1. You know, the Lord of the Rings doesn't get off the ground if there is no ring worth destroying, and there are no people willing to destroy it. The question assumes a mission, a mission of involvement. The question assumes a commitment to fight. We are reminded, dear saints, that the Christian life is one of struggle, all-out war. The problem before us is our sin. It is the opposition of the world. It is the kingdom of Satan, full of darkness. The passive, submissive way of living is actually the way of dying, the way of surrendering to sin and the consequent destruction When Kevin McAllister asked Harry and Marv if they had had enough of his creative booby traps, Marv stood up straight and bold in his exclamation and cried, Never! We would never have enough. He wanted that house. He wanted the life of that kid. 
because that kid was a bother, getting in the way of taking all of the house's goods. The wicked persist in wickedness, and they'll pursue their devilish ends until their end. The promised land was a type of the whole earth. What does Jesus say? That the meek shall inherit the earth. To be meek does not mean to be passive, but it means to fight the Lord's battle, not your own. You say, the Lord's battle becomes mine because I am in Christ. I pursue his kingdom and his righteousness, not mine. I do what is pleasing in his eyes and not in the eyes of my sinful flesh. Moses, the meekest man before Jesus, fought valiantly. The greater Moses, Jesus, the meekest of all men, fought the snake and his wicked offspring. And as we take up the banner of Christ, we fight with him as our head. The fight, dear ones, is always on until Christ returns. Let us pursue good as the wicked chase after evil. We, we know the problem in verse 1. We see the answer. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Here is the Lord's clear but challenging answer, Judah. This sound direction was prophesied back in Genesis 49, which I had read earlier this morning. Judah is the man. Judah is the tribe that shall lead the others in victory. Here is the royal tribe of Israel who will lead others in the battle for the Lord. But there's a challenge. The challenge that Judges paints is one of unity. Will all of the tribes come together? And will they come together for a common cause? And for a common righteous cause? When God's people unite to fight God's war against evil, success is granted. But when they are divided or disobedient or when they are united in sin, failure is to be expected. And so Judah, when he, when he invites Simeon to join in the battle against Adonai Bezek, what happens? They win. Clear and simple. Easy as pie. So from verse 3, we see that the Lord requires unity for overcoming enemies. Judah said to Simeon, you fight my battle, and then I will join you and fight yours. The inclusion of Simeon is significant here. In the same blessing from Jacob to his children, his words to Levi and to Simeon seem to be more like curses than blessings, don't they? We read the text. But Levi's curse was converted into a blessing as God made the priests from Levi. So what about Simeon? Simeon's salvation, his, it hangs in midair just awaiting for a glove of security to catch it. As Simeon joins with Judah, then the Lord brings salvation to an otherwise cursed people. Later on in church history, we'll see that Simeon was even spared Assyrian captivity. Again, salvation is connected to the tribe of Judah, to the true son of Judah, to Jesus. At the same time, 
Here is the Lord's reminder to his church that we need one another to fight. We need one another in our warfare. There is, in our backyard, a, a forest. And it's decades, probably decades of overgrowth. Vines, network of vines, and uh, chopped down trees, and all kinds of stuff. And so I've been working to clear that out, slowly but surely. And I had commissioned my two young boys to help me with this noble cause. There was a stack of logs said, will you take these logs and bring them down to the driveway? And they were up to the task. Yes, of course. This, this seems like a lot of fun. And so Joshua and Caleb, they go, and some of these logs were pretty small, and they, each one could grab a log by himself, bring it down. But there was a couple logs that required more than you know, two hands, so they worked together. And there was even a log or two that required our neighborhood Gideon's help as well. And so three of these boys are carrying logs down to the driveway, working together in this mutual quest to clear out this overgrown area. One boy couldn't do all that himself. Two boys made it a lot easier. Three boys, even more easy. We need one another. The Christian life is not for just a, a, a solo Christian to fight. We fight common enemies. We have our mutual foes. The Lord conquers all his and our enemies. And he uses the church to be engaged in this warfare. But too often, we view each other as the enemy. Too often, our sights are on the wrong person. They're on the wrong institution. They're on the wrong cause. That's what we see in Judges. Towards the end, there's a civil war. Civil. It's not really civil, but it's between one another. And the world around is just looking and mocking and saying, well, they really don't have their act together. What kind of God is their God? What kind of God is our God? Does he not join us together to Christ, to one another, to fight against sin? This is why there's all that language in Scripture about coming side by side to one another, to be praying for one another, to bring one another before the throne of grace to mourn with those who mourn, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to come before Christ on behalf of your anguishing brother, on behalf of your depressed sister, that saint that's struggling with that sin. But when we view each other as the enemy, this warms the cockles of Satan's heart because this heat of hostility is the stuff of hell. That animosity, 
that unrighteous anger, that rejection of peace, true peace in Christ who is our peacemaker. Oh, the devil loves it. He eats it up. And he considers himself victorious in that battle to divide the Christians, to divide brother from brother and brother from sister and sister from sister. We must dwell in unity and deaden the devil's darts in unity as well. Let us bring one another before the throne of grace for his grace in our mutual battles. At the end of this text, the Lord ensures justice in the case of Adonai Bezek. Now, Deo Ralph Davis in his commentary says, The Bible, of course, does not claim the conquest will be palatable, but it does insist it was just. There's a lot of things in Scripture that are not palatable, that don't go easily into our ears, perhaps tempt us to shut our eyes as we read. That's in the Bible? Ezekiel said that? Jeremiah said that? Moses did that? And on and on. Or even Jesus said that? The most surprising prophet of all. It's not palatable at times, but as we were reminded in our ABF lesson this morning, God is just, always just, immutably, unchangeably just. To deny his justice would be to deny his godness. He cannot be anything other than just. And so justice will always be executed in his timing for his glory. And here is a case of poetic justice. Judah's battle was against Adonai Bezek, which just means Lord of Bezek. They took down the Canaanites and the Perizzites and Bezek. They defeated 10,000, and they pursued Adonai Bezek when he fled, just like all the wicked do before God's agents. We're reminded, dear ones, to resist the devil and he will flee from you as you humbly submit to God, as you cast your burdens upon the Lord, knowing that he cares for you, as you submit yourself to the inspired teaching of the word, as you prayerfully go before God and ask and seek and knock, as you plead for the daily mercies that are new every morning and that are yours every morning, as you do that, you will resist the devil. He will flee from you. You will resist your own sin. As God catches this little tiger of Bezek by his toe, he doesn't leave his toes untouched. With Judah and Simeon as his hands and feet, he cuts off portions of each. There's no more thumbs. There are no more big toes for this once exalted, now humiliated Lord. A far cry from unjust punishment, here we see the application of the biblical law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Or we could say a thumb for a thumb, a big toe for a big toe. As he had done to those he conquered, now the Lord does to him. This is not cruel and unusual punishment. This is punishment to the toe. 
out of the mouths of babes has the Lord chosen to speak at times, but here it is out of the mouth of a king that the justice of the judge of all the earth is acknowledged. Adonai Bezek does what all kings will one day be forced to confess before the king. He knows that his punishment comes from the Lord and that it was a just punishment. This is not to say that he converted, but it is that the Lord, it is to say the Lord had caused him to confess truly what was going on. The warning of Psalm 2 stands as their last call to find refuge in Christ's kingdom. Be wise, O kings. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Humble yourselves before the Son, who is king over all. And if this warning is not heeded, then the king will cause them to perish in his way his second coming to complete the righteous reign that he began at Christmas. This is a just punishment. And we won't have to worry, those who are outside of Christ won't have to worry about their thumbs being cut off or their toes or their fingers being cut off, but that them being cut off from the presence of Christ. suffering endlessly under the just wrath of God, being poured, about, poured upon them both body and soul. That is what awaits all who are not finding refuge in Jesus Christ, the son of Judah, the son of David. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I'll leave you with this warning from the Puritan Richard Rogers. Do not pity the wicked. We are not to mourn Adonai Bezek's death, but instead marvel again at our God's saving grace of deliverance. This is good news for those Israelites in the period of Adonai Bezek. This is good news for those of Judah and Simeon who took down the Canaanites and the Perizzites, who defeated 10,000 of them, who caused Adonai Bezek to flee. This is good news for them. Because the Lord, the just Lord, rescues his people from the hands of evil and even cuts off those hands that they might no longer bear any sinful fruit. To pity the wicked is to pity the one divinely damned and so decide with the sinner and not the Savior who is king. The one constant, our king, the Christ from the tribe of Judah, rules now and forever. And he has cut off the thumbs and toes of Sheol. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Well, Christ took it upon himself on the cross. And all those who turn to him will be able to lift up their hands and rejoice in the refuge who is their Christ. Let's pray. A wonderful God, we see already from the beginning hard, hard narrative, hard story. We see your justice. At the same time, we see your grace and your mercy and your, your love for your people. Help us, Lord, to appreciate that love 
to praise you for that union we have with Christ and so with one another and to fight in Christ's kingdom with one another for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.